Have you ever been surprised by God? Maybe an event that happened in your life or in the world, it surprised you that it was part of God's plan in the world. You're just surprised that something happened, like, whoa, can't believe that. Um, Brief example, as a Bengals fan, I was not anticipating that the Bengals would make it to the AFC championship game. I was not thinking that that would happen. Uh, If you're a Chiefs fan, you could kind of assume that the Chiefs were probably going to make it to the AFC championship game, but I've been surprised that the Bengals have made it to the AFC championship game. So, and I've even said, Lord, this is amazing. Uh, It's fun. Um, On a more serious note, maybe you were surprised that something hard or challenging came into your life because you thought that God wouldn't allow or plan such things if he really loved you and cared for you or for someone else. It was a surprise that that hard thing came along. We are surprised by him when we see things that we think are in his character that really aren't maybe. And we didn't know about it or expect it. And sometimes this can be a a danger. It can be a danger in being surprised by him when we expect things from him in his plans or in his character that he himself never claimed he would be like. So it can be a danger to expect something from God that he himself never said that he would do or a way in which we expect him to be like when he himself never said he would be like that. We end up having, I guess what you could say are divine misconceptions or misplaced divine expectations, right? Divine misconceptions or misplaced divine expectations. Well, in our passage today, we see some examples of divine misconceptions that the people can have about Jesus. And it may be that we will be challenged in ones that we may have about the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his help. Lord, uh, you are God and we are not. We so often try to project ourselves onto you We project our character, our expectations onto you, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, right now, as we spend time in your word, that uh, you would help expose some of these things. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us, that there are so many things that we do not see with so many blind spots in our lives Uh, that you are so patient and gracious with us about. So we thank you for that ahead of time. And we thank you for your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, in verses 1 through 6 of our passage, uh, we see a very familiar story for us. Um, Michael and I were talking this week about how... uh, 
going through Mark in the order that we're going in and just going over some of these stories at a time of the year when we're not normally used to doing them. It's weird to talk about the triumphal entry when we're not even close to Easter right now, right? Um, so it's, it's strange to kind of enter into these things, uh, but also refreshing. So here's the triumphal entry. And uh, in verses one through six, we just see this display of uh, God's omniscience where he knew about the cult, right? He knew about the cult, where it would be. He also knew about not only where the cult was going to be, but also the history of the cult that no one had ever ridden on it before. And, and this speaks to his omnipotence, his power, uh, he prepared the hearts of the owners to release the cult for him to use. So this display of God's omniscience and omnipotence really shows that Jesus is the Lord, right? And just a, a, a quick side comment attached to that. You know, we get these little pictures into um, God's omniscience and, and omnipotence, his omnipresence, all these different things that he's all-encompassing in, right? We get these pictures in Scripture of that. But a lot of times we don't then apply that same thing to our lives. As, it, like, as if God isn't as omniscient about our own lives. As if he is not as omnipotent in our own lives. As what he displays himself in scripture. But the Lord has just as deep and, and deeper and even deeper understanding of our lives. As what he does here with the, with the cult. And just as much power and even more power over our lives than he does here with the cold. And so we see this displayed here just showing Jesus is, um, that he is God as he is preparing before the entry into Jerusalem. So here in verses 7 and 8, riding into Jerusalem... It's really interesting to think about Jesus up until this point. He's been keeping a fairly low profile in ministry. Okay? He's been staying in villages and in the wilderness of Israel, right? Low profile. Performing miracles in out of the way places, telling people to shh, be quiet, don't say this to other people, right? He slips away from religious leaders when they're going to try to kill him. He kind of slips away. He's going to quiet places by himself at times. And he's hanging out with fishermen and sinners, right? He's just this low profile. But here, things change, don't they? He is choosing and planning to enter into Jerusalem. So those other things that we said, him keeping a low profile, those uh, would seem maybe out of character to us or to those people at the time for the God of the universe. Like, why would the God of the universe be keeping a low profile? <laughs> right? But now he's choosing to come out 
into the open big time to present himself to all of Jerusalem. He's choosing to make himself very public. And he has done this in the context of what? Of coming to die. He's going to make his death a very public thing. Which would also seem out of character for the God of the universe, wouldn't it? Like, why would something that seems like such defeat for the God of the universe be something that he wants to be so public and so on display? We know why, right? Because we know ultimately it's not a defeat. We know it is victory. It's victory for us, isn't it? So he makes his death very public. So, uh, riding in on a donkey, very public, and riding on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9. I'm just going to go there, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Zechariah 9 or pull it up on your phone. Here's what it says. I'm just going to read a few verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return your stronghold, O prisoners, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So there's this prophecy about Jesus and him coming on the foal of a donkey. This is Messiah, this is the king. And so he's going to be uh, speaking peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And he's going to set prisoners free. This is a great picture, right? And so the people of Jerusalem would know about this prophecy they would know that Jesus, so even though it's weird to us uh, and to some people at the time, like once again, here's the God of the universe coming humbly on a donkey. And yes, they would have known, hey, this is the prophecy from Zechariah, so we can welcome this. But to some too, there would be the expectation of, if he's such a mighty king, we're used to mighty kings coming in after victory on war horses and having celebration parades for victory in battle. And he is not coming like that. But they do welcome him, many in the city. And they 
are having an expectation of him being Messiah at some level for sure. And we know this by what they shout in verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the literal translation of Hosanna means save now. Save now. There's an urgency to it. So then even when they say Hosanna in the highest, it's like, Save us now, like the, save us at the utmost now. Hosanna in the highest. So there's a plead, there's a pleading to save us now to the utmost. So I think we can assume that in the crowd, there were people who really did have faith in Jesus for who he is and what he was doing and what he was going to do. And so they were pleading that save now for good reasons that are connected with really who Jesus is. But then there were probably many in the crowd who were shouting save now for reasons that he didn't come to save them for. We know that there was a huge expectation of the Messiah coming and overthrowing the Roman government, overthrowing whoever was oppressing the Israelites. This person is going to come and make us mighty. He's going to come and make us mighty. And so we want to see that. And we know that this guy has already displayed power through his miracles. He's displayed authority through his teachings And so he is going to deliver on this expectation that we have of him. He's got to be the one who's going to, because he's shown he has this power. He surely is going to overthrow the Romans and give us what we want in terms of power and prominence in our land. So when we hear a shout for Hosanna, we have to say, okay, there were wrong ways in which people were shouting Hosanna then. But who are we in the crowd? Who are we in the crowd? What are two ways that we can shout Hosanna wrongly? Maybe more. I just thought of two. Um, So if you break it down, you can think of we shout to Jesus that we want him to save us of things that he doesn't desire to save us from. We can shout that to him. So we, we have an expectation of Jesus and we make him into a God that he isn't. We make him into a God that he isn't, that he didn't claim to be. A God that we feel we need more than him. We actually turn him into someone that he didn't claim to be, but we feel like we actually need that new projected God of him more than what we need he himself who he claims to be. 
So we shout Hosanna to Jesus with a wrong way of thinking about Jesus. Well, what would be some examples of that? Well, Jesus did not come to give us an easier life. He didn't come to do that. He didn't claim to come to do that. In certain ways, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? There is a way in which we do experience, in the most important way, we experience freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the burden of sin. The sin that separates us from the God, from the God who made us. So we do get to experience a, a lessening of the load. The most important load. But then there's other ways that we expect that things will go easier for us. Comfort-wise. Less challenges in life. Why are these things coming my way? So we put these wrong expectations on him. And he did not come to give us an easier life. He said, actually, as Christians, we should expect to suffer like he suffered. We will follow in the footsteps of his suffering. So actually, when we don't experience suffering, that should be a surprise to us. That should stand Am I experiencing some level of suffering? Because that would be us listening to Jesus and who he says he is and what he says should come from a life of following him. Then we should, oh yes, then we have right expectations and we line it up with who he is and what he says. And we shouldn't expect uh, that he would, you know, this, this is for our times right now, right? The tensions we feel of, of government and all these things. But the same way that they were expecting Jesus to come and bring a government that would give them what they wanted, they were wrong in doing that. And so if we expect that God is going to give us a government that will give us everything we need to be able to especially have a comfortable life, we would be dead wrong in assuming that. Whatever side of the aisle you may be on, right? Now, we can love to want to bring uh, flourishing uh, to the world and want to have government bring flourishing that we know God says will be good for all people. Yeah, we can have those good desires and want to try to strive for those. But in terms of wanting to be aligned with a government that we hope will bring us comfort and ease in life and to give us power and prominence, that would be wrong. Here's the second way. So we can look at Jesus and we can turn him into a God that he is not. But also we shout save now to false gods to idols, and therefore we committed idolatry in that way. So the first way we actually do idolatry too, because we turn Jesus into somebody he's not, into a new God that we worship, that's idolatry. And then this way, we look at things that we know are not Jesus, and we shout save now, like from the yearning of our souls, we shout save now to them. Because we want them to save us, to deliver us from things that they cannot deliver on. 
So we desire to be saved from things that have no power to save. So Zechariah, I'm going to go back there. If you look at the flow of what's happening in Zechariah 9, it's talking about, and it'll even say the little headings in your Bible maybe, on your Bible app, you know, from 9 to 13 in my Bible it says the coming king of Zion. And then the next section in verse 14 it says the Lord will save his people. So there's this promise, the coming king, is, he's coming. The Lord is going to save his people. So there's this great message of salvation. Then in chapter 10, which we know originally in, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter and verses, right? So it's not like, you know, it was, it was a flow there. Okay, but we have a break there with chapter 10. But in chapter 10, here's what it says. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. Now look at this in verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So after these great passages on the king is coming and the Lord will save, then there's this reminder from the Lord to seek him because here's the things over here that you find yourself getting distracted by these household gods that are made of wood or stone or whatever. Uh, and there's all those great passages in Isaiah where it goes into detail about uh, somebody who's making and crafting their own idol out of a piece of wood and all the trouble they go to make it exactly right and then they set it on their mantle or whatever and they worship it. And it's like, you just made your own God out of wood and he's calling out the folly of that like you can't make me I'm I'm the Lord here's this God that you just tried to fashion yourself and you spent all this time and energy doing it and you're pouring your heart into that thing that's so foolish and so there's this reminder the household gods utter nonsense there's so many things that we seek salvation from, that we seek to just, even if it's just in five minutes of a day, you ever been distracted for five minutes seeking sustenance from something, seeking a salvation kind of feeling from something? And those things we, that we're seeking that from, they utter nonsense. It says the diviners see lies false dreams and they give empty consolation we think that they're giving us consolation but it's empty so then what happens that last part of verse 2 therefore the people people wander like sheep they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd so we just end up aimlessly wandering in the midst of a day, overcome by our seeking salvation from those idols. 
just for some greater clarity on, on, I think Tim Keller has done a great job of kind of defining what idols are and the danger of them. Here's a couple of things that he says. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And then he also says, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. We put them in the place of God. So I think, okay, are the Bengals an idol to me? It's a good question to ask, right? I remember listening to sports talk radio many times in Cincinnati when we lived there, and the people would call in the day after a Bengals loss, which happened often. They'd call in the day after a Bengals loss, and it's like they said, my whole week is screwed up. The Bengals lost, you know? And it's like, if the Bengals, of course I'll be disappointed if the Bengals lose today. But if it sends me to a place where I'm complaining and grumbling, where I'm having a bad attitude, where I'm holding on to the victory that I hope they give as if this is going to give me something that it cannot deliver on, if it gets in the way of to where I can't, and this will sound weird to us, I can't even be joyful, especially for Christian brothers and sisters who may be Chiefs fans and, find, and be joyful with them, you know, to where I just see them as like an annoyance. And it's like, I would want them to be joyful with me, but that's hard, right? But that's how we make things into idols to where then we can't even take joy in what other people are experiencing when we don't get what we wanted. That's how we do it. And we wander like sheep without a shepherd. So what are you finding yourself shouting Hosanna to on a consistent basis that is not the Lord Jesus? Or how do you see yourself expecting something from Jesus that he never said he would do? How are you shouting Hosanna like that? What are you making an idol out of? What is a good thing that may not even be a sinful thing? The Bengals aren't sinful in and of themselves, right? But could I turn it into an idol? Oh, yes, I could. That you have turned into something that you put your hope in and make it an ultimate thing. May the Lord help us to see that, right? In verses uh, 11 through 14, we have this little bridge before we get to the temple. And it really comes down to this, this fig tree idea. And the fig tree seems kind of like a weird thing to us, like, what is Jesus doing here? And really, we just have to see the fig tree as a parable, as a living parable, 
not necessarily a spoken one like he would share, as a living parable of what is about to take place in the temple. So he, he goes to the fig tree, and the fig tree has leaves on it, and there's a sense of expectation in his hunger that there will be something to eat. And I read about, uh, I don't read about these things all the time or something like that, but Middle Eastern fig trees, okay? Supposedly in, in non-fig-bearing season, there's also these little uh, nodules that, that they'll get on the tree as well that also had a sweet taste to them and, and were good for eating. So even those weren't apparent on that fig tree at the time. So Jesus, seeing what could be something that would show him, oh, there, there might be something here for me to eat, there was nothing there. And usually when a tree has that uh, a time when you're expecting to find something on it, but it's not bearing fruit, means that there's a chance there could be disease, rot on the inside, and it's still bearing leaves but no fruit. Well, that's what we get at the temple, is there's maybe an outward picture that there could be fruit in the life of something. And boy, this is what Jesus exposes a lot in his ministry, right? Outward expression of things without inward heart love and joy in the Lord. So the fig tree is a picture of that. So it goes right in line with things like when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. I mean, who wants to be called a whitewashed tomb? That means I look good on the outside, but I'm dead on the inside. Very cleaned and polished on the outside, dead on the inside. Or, um, you know, washing, when he talks about you wash the outside of the cup, but you're not washing the inside of the cup, he says to them. Because nobody likes going to the dishwasher and seeing that your cup is clean on the outside, but then when you go to look on the inside, you're like, there's no way I'm drinking out of that. It didn't get all the stuff out. There's no way. It's got to go back through the dishwasher again. And it probably happens the next three times you take it out of the dishwasher, right? Um, but there's that emphasis on cleaning the outside. I would rather have a dirty cup on the outside at some level and have it clean on the inside because it would make me feel better about drinking it. But Jesus, of course, cares about both. But he knows that the outside isn't going to be clean in us unless the inside is clean. That's the kind of cleanliness Jesus cares about, is one that's been changed on the inside so that then good stuff comes out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good things. So when he comes to the the temple, he clears the temple because here's all this, this busyness and bustle of providing sacrifices They're selling animals to be sacrificed. And uh, I guess Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, he recorded that during um, Passover, there were as many one year as 255,000 lambs sold for sacrifice. So you talk about a busy, bustling industry, (laughs) And just how busy it must have been there in the temple 
during this time, it would have been crazy. So Jesus comes in and he sees all this stuff that's providing sacrifices, but that it's really not reflecting the people's hearts of love for him. So that's one way that this Jesus is not cool with this. The other way is that walking immediately into the temple, you would have been coming into the court of the Gentiles. And that was the only place where non-Jewish people could come and, and participate in worship, was in the court of the Gentiles. So they had essentially taken the room where the, court, the Gentiles were supposed to come and seek the Lord and filled it up with stuff that kept Gentiles from being able to come and pray and seek the Lord. So when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, they were preventing Gentiles from coming to worship the Lord and getting in the way of that. So when he quotes Isaiah 56, listen to these words that the Lord said in the Old Testament about foreigners. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. He's saying this to foreigners who seek him. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So even in the Old Testament, this was the heart of God. And Jesus was coming in and seeing that they did not care about the Gentiles coming to the Lord. And they even had a tradition at the time that they believed Messiah would come and rid the temple of foreigners. That was their tradition and teaching that was not consistent with Scripture. So they had that divine misconception that Messiah was going to come do that, but instead Messiah comes in, clears the temple of all their busyness and external stuff, and says, no, you need to make room for Gentiles to come and pray to me. It's amazing the traditions and the misconceptions we can have that build over time. We grew up with, that we make off of just our own life experience, that honestly, we aren't reading God's word enough to find out what he really says about himself. 
like these people who were probably upset that Jesus was coming and doing this, they had a divine misconception of him. But he was doing exactly what his heart had said his heart loves. I'm just going to end with this quote uh, from Keller. He kind of summarizes uh, these events with riding into Jerusalem and uh, clearing the temple. Here's what he says. There is a final irony to all of this. Jesus, who, who unites such apparent extremes of character into such an integrated and balanced whole, demands an extreme response from every one of us. So the fact that he can be both lowly and gentle and also come and clear the temple. So these extremes that we see of Jesus, that we, can, that we have to behold them at, in tension at the same time. He says he forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of his kingdom to everyone then warns the most devout insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness is forever closing down our options. This man who can be weakened by a torch, by, sorry, by a touch in a crowd on his way to bring a little girl back from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes from. And we haven't even yet witnessed the true depths of his restraint or the heights of his power. He is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword from the Garden of Eden. And you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Those teachers of the law who began plotting to kill Jesus at the end of this episode in the temple, they may have been dead wrong about him, but their reaction makes perfect sense. And I love this plead from him that I want to make to all of us. Please don't try to keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him. Center your entire life on him. And let his power reproduce his character in you. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us not to be deceived. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see uh, so that we can see these misconceptions that we have about you and the things we chase after that are not meant to save us. Help us, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being our true Savior and Lord. Give us joy in you. In your name we pray. Amen.